You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is For Such a Time as This, Episode 10, with Daniel Pell. Welcome to our series, For Such a Time as This, and we're excited to enter into another study of God's Word. Tonight, our topic is entitled, The Two Most Important Questions in the Book of Revelation. The Two Most Important Questions in the Book of Revelation. During this series, we've been journeying throughout Scripture, and we've been looking at God's purpose for our lives, the identity that He invests in us as God's people living at the very end of time. And so I'm excited about our study in the book of Revelation tonight, and you might be curious about what those two most important questions are. Well, we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get straight into our topic. Father in heaven, thank you so much for another opportunity to open your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to study the book of Revelation. And thank you for the promise that the book of Revelation gives us, that those that study it will be blessed and prepared for your coming. So please be with us. Grant us that blessing that you have in store for us and guide us with your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. That's the last book in the Bible, 66th book in the Bible, and the very last one is the book of Revelation. I've always been a very keen student of the book of Revelation myself. Uh, from the moment I became a Christian, I was very interested in that prophetic book. Uh, many people um, endeavor to understand the book of Revelation without the rest of the Bible, and they find themselves often in a lot of confusion regarding the symbolism and the figurative language. But as you take the book of Revelation and you read it in its context with the rest of the Bible and you study the passages and prophecies and parallel them with the stories that we find both in the Old and the New Testament, Revelation starts to come alive. Revelation is indeed a fascinating book and it is a book for our very day and age, the very time in which we are living. In Revelation chapter 1 and the very first verses, a blessing is pronounced upon those that study the book of Revelation. I want to begin tonight's lecture with reading that blessing that we find in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And the Bible says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And I believe truly that the time is near and there is a great blessing to be gained by studying the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ gave this message to his servant. And John the Apostle recorded the words as he was banished, exiled on the island of Patmos. He wrote the book of Revelation. And today you and I have the privilege to open this 2,000-year-old book and to investigate and examine the truths for our time. Truly, John was writing more for us than even for his very time. There were prophecies and letters that pertain to his time, but certainly there's a lot of the book of Revelation that was future in the days of John, and yet it is now in our time. And so it is fascinating to be able to open this book, study it, and receive that blessing that God has in store for us. I would like you to turn in, 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 in the book of Revelation to chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to pick it up right there in verse 1. And the first chapters of Revelation are really, um, the first chapter um, is an, in, uh, an introductory chapter. Um, John has an incredible vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Then in chapters 2 and 3, he writes seven letters to seven destinations in Asia Minor. The very churches that he had ministered to himself, he writes letters to these churches, sends those letters to these various destinations. And then you come to chapter Four, and John has an incredible vision of the throne room in heaven. And that's where we want to pick it up tonight in Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
And the Bible says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one set on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper, a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now, I want you to just try to picture that for a moment, what a scene that, that must have been like. John is caught up in vision, and he beholds the very throne room of heaven. Just imagine the dazzling glory that now passes before the eyes of this aged disciple. He looks, and he sees God on the throne, but not only does he see the throne with all its beauty, he also sees 24 elders that are dressed in white robes and crowns upon their head. It must have been an amazing sight for this disciple. And as he's beholding this scene, something else takes place. And I want to go a little bit um, on into um, Revelation here. And if you turn to chapter 5, the next chapter, and we read there in verse 1 the following, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to lose its seals? Now, not only does John see the throne room in heaven, not only does he see the throne with the Father sitting on that throne and the 24 elders around the throne, but then he sees that in the right hand of the Father sitting on the throne is a scroll, and the scroll is sealed, according to Revelation chapter 5, with seven seals. In other words, this, this scroll cannot be opened. It's not just sealed once, not just twice, but sealed with seven seals. And we've discussed earlier in, uh, in this uh, series that the number seven is an important number in the Bible. You see it reoccurring many times, particularly, by the way, in the book of Revelation. A lot of sevens in the book of Revelation. It indicates completeness. It indicates fullness. And so here this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And according to verse 2, no one can open that scroll. As a matter of fact, verse 2 says that John sees a strong angel, and I want to emphasize that word strong. Actually, an angel is already strong, right? I mean, when you think of an angel and you look at scriptures and the stories about angels from Genesis to Revelation, an angel could do miraculous things. An angel could do things that humans cannot do. They are super strong, and here it is emphasized, not only is it an angel, but a very strong angel. And yet there is something that this strong angel cannot do. What can the strong angel not do according to verse 2? It says, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? If the strong angel is proclaiming uh, who is worthy to open the scroll, this indicates that he himself is not able. He needs someone else to help him because even this strong angel is not capable of opening this sealed book. Well, who is capable if a strong angel is not capable? Well, we continue to read here in verse 4. Look at the, look at the response of John as he beholds this scene. Verse 4, Revelation chapter 5 and verse 4, it says, So I wept much. Because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. He didn't just shed a tear, but it says he wept much. John was in distress. John was in sorrow. John was grieving because no one was able to open the sealed book. It says he wept much. No one was, no one was worthy. No one was found capable. And for John, this scene was really impressive. It, was, it, it had a great, um, it worked in his, in his life on his emotions, and, and he knew that something very, very, very serious and important was at stake if no one would be found to open that very book. 
Sometimes when we study Scripture and sometimes when we study the book of Revelation, some of the scenes that we behold here in Revelation can be traced back to the Old Testament. Actually, when you look at the scenario here in Revelation chapter 5, it's really a scenario that pops up in various stories in the Old Testament. The question that is asked is who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? But in order to answer that question, we have to understand a little bit more about the setting of this event. God on the throne, the 24 elders, the scroll that is sealed with seven seals, what does it really all mean? See, the first most important question in the book of Revelation is that very question right there in verse 2. Who is worthy to open the scroll, scroll and loose its seals? And you're thinking to yourself, well, is that really such an important question? Well, hang in in our study tonight and we'll see how important it is for that scroll to be opened because you will find out that our salvation is dependent on the opening of that book, of that scroll. And so who is worthy to open the scroll? Well, as you read a little on here, you find out who is worthy. Verse 5 says, But one of the elders said to me, this is John writing, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and in the four and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the one that is capable, the one that is worthy to open the seals, according to the description there in verse 5, is of course none other than Jesus Christ himself. Amen. It says very clearly the tribe, he comes from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. We know Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. He was the son of David. And what else does it say? It says in verse 6, he is the lamb that had been slain. Truly, Jesus is the one that is worthy to open the scroll. But still we need to find out a little bit more here. What is this scenario really all about? A sealed book, 24 elders, written on the, the scroll is written on the inside, on the outside. What is this really all about? Let's go to a story in the Old Testament and see if we can examine a little bit more about this scene. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah. For truly the book of Revelation cannot be understood in its completeness without the rest of the Bible. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 32 as we investigate into some Old Testament stories that I believe shed light upon the scene of Revelation chapter 5. And our first story is going to be found in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And turn with me to chapter 32, and we're just going to pick it up right there in the beginning of that chapter. Jeremiah chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king, uh, in the king of Judah's house. Now, it's interesting that you read here in Jeremiah chapter 32 that the prophet is shut up in the house of the king, or he's in prison, in other words. He's in the court of the prison. Now, Jeremiah had predicted that because of the apostasy of Israel, the king of the north, the king of Babylon, was going to besiege Jerusalem and overthrow Jerusalem, and they would be taken as captives to Babylon. He had been predicting this for quite a while. Now, the people People rejected Jeremiah. He's often known as the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah was rejected over and over again, though he gave warnings about the coming calamity, about the coming judgment that would come upon the people if they would not turn from their wicked ways and return to the Lord their God. And so now, even at this point, they get so tired of this prophet Jeremiah that they throw him in prison. And while Jeremiah is in prison, his prophecy comes to pass. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the north, the king of Babylon, besieges Jerusalem. Now, now, now just think about that for a moment. The prophecy of the prophet came to pass, and yet the prophet finds himself where? In prison. And the city is besieged by the king of the north. Now, at this very time, 
the Lord speaks to Jeremiah and asks him to do something that is really odd, that is, that is almost like you would think that this is, this is not really fitting into the situation of the country at that moment. But take notice what the Lord asks Jeremiah to do right here in the same chapter, Jeremiah chapter 32, and beginning or continuing in verse 6. Verse 6, Jeremiah is in the court, he's in the prison house, and then the word of the Lord comes to him in verse 6 and says, Verse 7, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shulam, your uncle, will come to you saying, Buy my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin, for the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. Think, think about that. Jeremiah is in prison. All the land has been invaded by the king of the north, by the king, of, uh, king Nebuchadnezzar. And there he is in prison, and suddenly the word of the Lord comes to him. And the word of the Lord says, the Lord says to Jeremiah, your cousin is going to come to you, your cousin, Hanamel, and he's going to offer to sell, to sell you some of his land, and I want you to buy that land. Now, you would think that this is about the worst time to buy land, Right? I mean, everything belongs to the king of the north. Uh, the king of Nebuchadnezzar has invaded the land. What, what a time to buy land. And yet the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah to do that very thing. And the question, of course, is why would the Lord ask Jeremiah to buy land at such a critical uh, and, and, and really unwise moment in time? Well, let's continue to read and see what the Lord was trying to teach the people through this act. Um, we go to verse 12, uh, ver no, verse um, 14, verse 14, look at what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this purchased deed which is sealed and this deed which is open and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. Now, Jeremiah, in another place earlier, had predicted that the people of God were going, to be, uh, were going to go into captivity, going to be taken to Babylon for a period of 70 years. And when you trace the story of history and you trace the story uh, of the biblical narrative, you find out that they were exactly in Babylon 70 years, according to the words of Jeremiah. Now, just at the very moment, at the very beginning of this captivity, God is in his mercy giving a message to his people that though they were going to go into captivity as a result of their wicked ways and a result of their sin and departure from the Lord, God in his mercy gives them a promise that after those 70 years, they will come back and they will again inherit land. And how does God make this known? Well, he gives a message through the prophet Jeremiah to buy land from his cousin because one day, the Lord says, you are going to again possess lands. As if you go to the end of that chapter, in the end of Jeremiah chapter 32, look at verse 42 to 44. It says, For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. Well, what is that good that he has promised them? Verse 43 says, And fields will be bought in this land, of which you say it is desolate without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. So God gives them a promise. Though they're going into captivity, they will come again. They will come back to the promised land and they will possess land. Not only will they possess land, they will buy and sell land once more. Now, you're thinking, well, how does this all connect to our scenario in Revelation chapter 5? Well, I want you to take notice of how in the Jewish economy, in the Jewish times, that they sold and purchased land. It's very interesting. Look at the scene here in Jeremiah chapter 32 and go to verse 6. Um, no, rather, let's go to verse 9. Verse 9. In chapter 32, verse 9. 
So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was an Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And look at how now this purchase, uh, this transaction takes place, verse 10. And I signed the deed and did what? Sealed it took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Barak, the son of Neriah, son of Maseiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. Now, there was a, a, a way in which they purchased land. There was a way in which they would sell land. How did it happen? Well, the purchase would be written in a book. It would be written on a scroll. And then that scroll, according to the passage, what would they do with that scroll? They would, they would seal it. Exactly. They would seal it. And something else that is of interest here is that the cousin of Jeremiah first offers the land to Jeremiah. In the Jewish economy, when you would sell a land, you would first have to go to those that were close, the closest kinsmen or the closest relatives and sell the land to them. If they did not want to purchase the land and their rights would pass, then you could sell it to someone else. That's how things functioned. And so the cousin of Jeremiah sells the land to Jeremiah. It is is written on a scroll that scroll is sealed and this is done according to the passage in the in the sight of what in the sight of witnesses now this is a scene that is very very similar to the scene in revelation chapter 5 is it not in revelation chapter 5 we have a sealed scroll we have witnesses and when john beholds that scene and the strong angel says there's no one found worthy to open the scroll what is going on in the mind of John. When John hears that, when John sees that, he knows exactly as a Jew what this is talking about. He knows that this is concerning the purchase of a land. And if no one can open up that scroll, then no one will know who inherits the land. Are you with me so far? You see, no one will know who will inherit the land. You see, after the captivity of 70 years, for a long time they were in Babylon in captivity, when they came back from that captivity and they came to the land, um, that scroll would be opened up, unsealed, and it would be known to everyone that Jeremiah had purchased that land from his cousin. That land would be his. The purchase deed was there. It was on the scroll. The scroll was now unsealed. Now, uh, this gives us already a little bit of an insight into what we are dealing with in the book of Revelation. Because we know that Jesus himself said to his disciples, and these words are passed down to you and to me, Jesus says, uh, let not your heart be troubled. This is John chapter 14. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in, 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 in God. You believe also in me. Um, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? Come again and receive you unto myself. So Jesus says, I'm going to my father. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you unto myself. Jesus is preparing a place for us. Now, how do we inherit that land that he is preparing for us? How do we inherit that land? By us, we will, we will be written in a book, in a purchase deed, that indeed we are partakers of that land, that we are rightful owners of that land. Now, Jesus, of course, is the one that paid the price. And we could almost look at it in this way, that this world, we could almost say it's hijacked by the devil. It's hijacked by Satan himself. He believes that he is the rightful owner of this planet. And yet Jesus came to this world and he came as our kinsman, he came as a close relative of us to pay the price to redeem this world back, to pay the price so that this world is now his once more. And Jesus paid, of course, his very life to purchase this world. He purchased it, and that purchase is written down, my friends. And one day, that will be it will be revealed to the universe that this world belongs to Christ and Christ alone. And those that are in Christ, those that are connected with Jesus, will be partakers of this earth. 
Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says there on the Sermon of the Mount, he says, the meek will inherit the earth. Now let's go to another story to shed more light on, on, on the scene that we're dealing with here in Revelation. Turn with me from the book of Jeremiah, turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to look at the story of Ruth. That's all the way back there in the Old Testament. You have the first five books of Moses, and then right after Deuteronomy, you have Joshua, and then you have the book of Judges, and then you have the book of Ruth. Some of you will be familiar with the story of Ruth. Um, it's an interesting story. Uh, Ruth was the uh, daughter-in-law of Naomi, and Naomi was a Jew which was married to Elimelech, and they had two sons, and as Jews, they went to live in the country of Moab because of a famine at that time in, Jeru in, in Israel. And they stayed there, and they had two sons, and the two sons got married to two Moabite uh, ladies, the one being Ruth and the other being Orpha. Now, over the course of the years, Elimelech and his two sons died. And so Naomi was left with her two daughter-in-laws, uh, Ruth and Orpha. Now, Naomi decides that she's going to go back to her country. And so she travels back to the country of Israel. And Ruth persists to join her. And so she, they come together back to the country of Israel. And if you go to Ruth chapter 2, I want you to take notice of what happens as they come back to the country of Israel? It says in chapter 2 and verse 1, There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and clean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, as you continue to read in chapter 2 and 3, the scenario that, that unfolds itself is that, of course, Naomi wants Ruth to find a new husband, a new uh, a person to take care of her, and Boaz is that one. And so they end up uh, marrying, in the end of the story, um, Ruth and Boaz become husband and wife, and yet how this all transpires and how this all happens in the story is really interesting because it sheds a little bit light on the scenarios that we are looking at uh, in Revelation. And so take notice of chapter 4, go to chapter 4, Ruth chapter 4. And this is the moment that in chapter 3 you read all about the story of how um, Ruth and um, Boaz, they meet and uh, Boaz decides to take Ruth as his uh, wife. But there are a few things that need to happen before he can lawfully marry her. And in chapter 4, we read about that. And so let's begin right there in verse 1. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I want you to take notice of the scenario here. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So here are the witnesses. Verse 3, then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So it's talking here about, again, the purchase of land. Remember the scenario that we already read about in Jeremiah. Here a familiar scenario in the story of Ruth. And then verse 4 says, then I thought, this is Boaz speaking, to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Remember how um, if they were going to sell a land, it had to go to the closest relative. And now Boaz is saying like, okay, you're the closest one. If you don't buy this land, then I'm the next one in line so if you don't do it then I'll buy it and then the man says well this close relative says well I'll buy it but take notice there's something else in the story here this is where Ruth comes in verse 5 then Boaz said on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabite the wife um, the Moabitess the wife of the dead to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance in other words, very simply, if he bought the land, he would have to marry Ruth. 
And now when he hears that in verse 6, this is his response of the close relative. He says, um, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right, uh, my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. And, and, and so he doesn't want to do it. The moment he, he hears that, that he's going to have to marry Ruth and build up her inheritance, he says, okay, I, I'm not going to do it. And so the next in line is Boaz. And Boaz says, I will do it. And so Boaz purchases the land. And with the land comes a, a bride. Now, this is fascinating. With the land comes a bride. Now, the scenario in Revelation chapter 5 of the sealed book, sealed with seven seals, amongst the witnesses is a scenario of a purchase of land. Christ himself has paid the price to purchase this world. But praise God, with this world comes a bride. And that bride is none other than the church of God. You see, in the scenario of Scripture and all through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, as I've mentioned earlier in this series, there's this incredible, beautiful picture of Christ the bridegroom and, Christ, and, and, and the church, the bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, why don't we turn there for a moment, Ephesians chapter 5, you have this incredible, beautiful picture of Christ and the love that he has for his church, for his bride. Ephesians chapter 5, and look at verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but no nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And look at verse 32. For this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Christ and the church. See, the whole story of Ruth is a beautiful typology. The whole story of Ruth, Ruth is the church, Ruth, Ruth is the bride, and Boaz is the bridegroom, Boaz is Jesus Christ, and Boaz purchases a land from his close relative, and with that land comes the bride. And so Jesus Christ came to this earth, paid his life, paid the price for this earth to be redeemed, and this purchase is written in a book, and it's sealed with seven seals, and when those seals are removed, my friends, it will be known that Jesus Christ is the rightful owner of this world, and with this earth, with this world that he has purchased, comes a bride, and that bride is his church, it's his people. You and me are the bride of Christ. It's a beautiful picture. And so Revelation chapter 5 starts opening up and, and we start understanding a little bit better why John wept when the book couldn't be opened. You see, we think for a moment, like, how, why did he cry? I mean, is it so important? It must be. I mean, is it just merely future events that he could not know about? Is that why he wept? No, there was something far more, uh, of far greater importance than that. John understood the scene. When he saw the 24 elders, the book, sealed with seven seals, he knew that it was regarding, that it was about a purchase, a purchase of a land. And he knew that if that book could not be opened, then it would not be known who purchased the land, who is the rightful owner of the land. But praise God, the scene there in Revelation chapter 5, though tears are falling from, tears are running down the cheeks of John while he is there in great sorrow. The message is given to him, John, don't weep. There is someone from the tribe of Judah. There is one, the son of David. Jesus Christ himself can open the book. Jesus can make known who will, purchase, who will inherit the land. And we, as the bride of Jesus, can be written in that book as the rightful owners because we are united to him. 
I would like to go to a third story. We've looked at, we've looked at two historic stories in the Old Testament that shed light on Revelation chapter 5. We looked at the story of Jeremiah that purchased the field of his uh, cousin. We've looked at the story of Ruth. But there's a third scenario, a third story in the Old Testament that I would like to look at that sheds light on this event of Revelation chapter 5. We're still dealing with our first question, the first most important question. Who is worthy to open the book? We've already find, found out that's Jesus Christ, but we're learning a little bit more now about this whole scenario and what takes place. Um, I, want to, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Leviticus. So go back to the book of Leviticus and chapter 25, Leviticus chapter 25. That's all the way there in the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and then right after the book of Exodus, you have the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus chapter 25, and we're going to pick it up in verse 1. And this is dealing with the year of Jubilee. You see, sometimes we need to enter into the world of the Jews in order to understand a little bit of the language and scenarios of the book of Revelation. And so here, we enter into the world of the Jewish nation, and, and, and there was something that they kept. There was something of great importance, and that was the year of Jubilee. And let's see what it's all about. Revelation chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Listen to what the Bible says. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Verse 3. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year... There shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. So there was this sequence of six years in which they would grow their food, they would sow their seeds, they would reap their harvest. But then the seventh year, um, they would leave the land for a rest. The land would rest. And this would happen in uh, a continual cycle of, four, of, of, of a 50-year 50, of cycle, 50 years. If you look at verse Eight, listen to what it says, Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 8. It says, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven, seven Sabbaths of seven shall be to you 49 years. So it makes a lot of sense. So here we have a sequence of six years of growing food, one year of rest. Six years of growing food, one year of rest. And this cycle would go on for 49 years or seven times seven, right? Seven times seven is 49. And then when they would arrive in the 50th year, that year would be called the year of Jubilee. Now the question is, what would happen in the year of Jubilee? Look at verse nine and 10, Leviticus chapter 25 Verse 9 and 10, Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family." That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee to you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of its own accord, nor gather the grapes of your untended vine. For it is the year of jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You shall eat its produce from the field. Verse 13 says, In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his possession. You see, according to this cycle, they could sell their land and they could buy land during this period of, 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 of 50 years. And, but when the 50th year came, when the year of Jubilee came, they would return the land to its rightful owner. And this was really a protection for those that uh, had to sell their land for various reasons. They would not um, lose that land forever because in the year of Jubilee, it would be given back to its rightful owner. And so if you would, let's say, sell your land in the first year after the year of Jubilee, you would sell it to a greater price because there were a lot of harvests to be gained from that land until the next year of Jubilee. But let's say you would sell your land a year prior to the year of Jubilee, it would almost be worth nothing because the next year it would be given back. Does that make sense? So this is the scenario of Leviticus chapter 25. In the 50th year, on the year of Jubilee, uh, land would be given back to its rightful owner. Now, who is the rightful owner of this world? Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the rightful owner of this world. Now, who, who thinks he owns this world? Satan. Satan walks up and down this world and he says, this is mine. You know, this is, this is my place. You remember maybe the story of Job. The sons of God meet in this council of God and Satan comes amongst them and says, and God says, where have you come from? And, and Satan says, I've been coming from walking up and down to and fro in the world. It's like his. He claims it. He says, it's mine. But the rightful owner of this world is Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ purchased this land. He purchased this world when he died on the cross. With his own life, he paid the price, not only for this land, but also for the bride, his church. And this is written down in the scroll, sealed with seven seals. And when the year of Jubilee comes, when Jesus Christ returns, that scroll is going to be finally fully unsealed and we will know for surety that Jesus is the rightful owner of this world. And those that have connected themselves with Christ, those that have united themselves with Jesus through that marriage, through that union with Jesus, the church as the bride and Jesus Christ as the bridegroom, will with him be possessors of this land. Revelation reveals that this world will be the very center of the universe. God is going to recreate this world. New Jerusalem is going to be on this very planet. After the thousand years in heaven, God's people are going to come down and settle on this earth. This earth, this world that, have be, that has been the center of rebellion is going to be one day the center of righteousness. And you and I can be possessors of this land when we are united as a bride, as a church, to Jesus Christ. And so this story of the year of Jubilee reveals again some of the principles involved in this great controversy that we are all involved in. The year of Jubilee is coming, my friends, when Jesus returns as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The year of Jubilee has come and the final seal will be removed and the rightful owner will be made known. We've looked at three stories. We looked at the story of Jeremiah buying the field from his cousin. We looked at the story of Ruth and how she became, became the bride of Boaz, which purchased the land. We've looked at the story of the year of Jubileum, in which, in, the year of Jubilee, that after the, when the 50th year came, when the, when the cycle ended, the land would be given back to its rightful owner. And I believe that each of these three scenarios really sheds light on that question that we find there in Revelation chapter 5. So now why don't we go back to Revelation now and see if we can put all these puzzle pieces together. Revelation and chapter 5. And let's look once more at this incredible question, this most important question in the book of Revelation. And I think you're starting to see the significance and depth and importance of this question. Revelation chapter 5, and let's begin in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And no one could really read what was on that scroll until you would loosen those seals. And there are seven of them. And so John is looking on, the Apostle John is looking on to this scene. And then the Bible says in verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? That's the first most important question in the book of Revelation. Who is worthy to open the book? Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? Verse 3, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Verse 5 reveals that Jesus Christ became a close relative in order to purchase the land. You see, there are many ways that you could describe Jesus. There are, by the way, more than 200 names and characteristics of Jesus in the Bible. There are so many ways that you could portray Jesus, but the way that he is portrayed in verse 5 says something about who he is. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's from the root of David. In other words, he's one of us. 
He's a relative, a close relative. And he had to be in order to purchase the land. Remember the story of Jeremiah? Uh, his cousin first had to sell the land to him. If he didn't want it, he could go to someone else. Jesus becomes a close relative so he can purchase the land. And then look at verse 6. This is how he purchased the land. Verse 6, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Is that present tense, future tense, or past tense? That's past tense, right? It had been slain. In other words, Christ has paid the price. He is from the root of David. He's the, from the tribe of Judah. He has been, he's the lamb that has been slain. Here are all the criteria laid on the table for him to be worthy to open the book. He's worthy. He can open the book. Praise God. And it says in verse 7, Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he takes that scroll, all heaven bursts in praise. As a matter of fact, this is the greatest uh, moment almost in the book of Revelation. Uh, when you read from chapter 5, verse 8, all the way to the end of the chapter, it's one huge scene of praise in heaven. They are just glorifying in the fact that one has been found worthy to open that book, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. Let's read it here. Verse 8, it says, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us by God, by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Take notice of those words, we shall reign on the earth. That's exactly what will happen when the final seal is removed. Look at verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen, and the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. There's this great, great scene of praise, and it is because Christ has been found worthy to open the seals. And then you continue in chapter 6, and the first seal is peeled off. And events transpire. And you know, as a Bible student, I've always been very focused on those seals. And I remember studying them and studying them and studying them, finding them very fascinating. But I never really asked that deeper question as to what is really found in the book. And so I was very focused on the seals themselves, but really the seals are only really events that lead up to the opening of the scroll. Are you with me? Let's say here, this is, let's say this is the scroll right here, and it is sealed with seven seals, okay? Now, when one seal is removed, can I open the book? No. When two seals are removed, can I open the book? No. How many seals have to be removed until the book can be opened? Seven, right? All seven have to be removed. And so what we read about in Revelation chapter 6 is this sequence of seals being removed and events that are transpiring in the world that are leading us closer and closer and closer till the moment that what's going to happen? The book's going to be opened, right? The book's going to be opened. And so uh, you look at these seals, and we don't have time to study them in depth, but basically they are events from the days of John, the apostle, all the way until the second coming. And the second coming is that year of Jubilee, when it will be made known who is the rightful owner of this earth. And it will be known who are part of the bride of Christ, the church of God. And so you have the first seal that is opened up and it, and it talks about um, a man that goes forth conquering and, uh, and um, goes forth on a, on a white horse conquering. And then you read, and then the second seal is removed and you read about a, a red horse that takes peace from the earth. 
and then the third seal is removed and you read about a black horse and then the fourth seal you read about a, um, a horse that, that was pale and, and, and death and hell followed him and you read about these events that transpire in the course of these seals being peeled off and these events that came upon the world. And Bible students have also taken these seals and compared them to the message that you, found in the, uh, that you find in the letters that are written to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And in a remarkable way, in an in a, in a incredible way, it is really a panorama of history from the days of John all the way till the second coming of Christ. The first seal is a revelation of the gospel that went forth uh, with conquering power into the world. But then when the second seal is removed, you have this scenario of a red horse taking peace from the world, which was really a picture of the persecution that came upon the, upon the, the, the Christian church in the second century particular. And then when you have the third seal removed, you have a black horse, which reveals the, 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 the third um, uh, the period of the Christian church, you could say, almost like the third chapter of the Christian experience. And that was a period of compromise, a period in which the word of God was replaced for man's philosophies. And then, you know, it results in a time of great persecution, which you read about when the fourth seal is removed, a great, great persecution against God's church. And so it continues to bring us throughout the ages. And there is um, an incredible picture here that emerges of events that transpire with God's people and that, and that what is happening to God's people as we are coming closer and closer and closer to that decisive moment when the last seal is removed. Now, I would love to look closer at the seals um, tonight, but for time's sake, we don't have that time. But I, I encourage you to go back and study those because it's indeed fascinating when you compare these events with other um, timelines that you find um, in prophecy as it leads us closer and closer to the second coming. But as you come to the sixth seal, there's a clear picture there of the coming of Jesus. And I want you to take notice of this in Revelation chapter six and beginning in verse 14. This is when the sixth seal is now being peeled off. And look at what, look at the description of the prophecy there. Verse 14 says, then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Now, this is other texts that you read about in the Bible. You read when Jesus comes, every, you know, there's this great earthquake. Uh, everything is moving. The sky is like rolling back like a scroll. Look at what it says here in verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. And then verse 17, here comes the second most important question in the book of Revelation. Remember our title, the two most important questions in the book of Revelation. Question number one, who is worthy to open the scroll? What is number two? Here it comes in verse 17. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? The two most important questions in the book of Revelation. One question we have already answered. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Amen? He is worthy. He has purchased this world. And with this world comes his bride. And in the year of Jubilee, when he returns, it will be made known. And here in Revelation chapter 6, as we come to the sixth seal, and it is, it is being peeled back, the event that we read about here is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appears in great, great glory, and he asks the question, the question is asked, who is able to stand? My friends, those that will able, be able to stand on that great day are those that are united to Jesus as his bride. Because remember, Jesus Christ has now come and now the seventh seal is being removed. And you read about the seventh seal in chapter eight and verse one, listen to what it says. Then he opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What an awesome scene that must be like. 
When Christ finally comes and the last seal is removed, the seventh seal, it says there's silence in heaven. There's silence. And the question has been asked, who is able to stand? My friends, those that are able to stand are those that are part of the bride of Christ. Now, the book is being opened. The seventh seal has been removed. The book is being opened. And in the book, it is revealed that Christ is the rightful owner of this world. He's purchased it with his blood. But not only is the name of Jesus in that book, in that book it will also be recorded the names of those that have united themselves with Christ and become his bride, because they, together with him, are the rightful owners. The meek will inherit the earth. How, how fascinating. What a call for us today living in the end of time, living at the very time that almost this, this, this final seal is being removed, to live in the very time just prior to this most important question. And it's my prayer, my friends, that each one of us will be able to stand in those days, not because of our super strength in ourselves, not because of our super spirituality in ourselves, because in ourselves we are weak and frail. The Bible says that all our righteousness is like filthy rags. And yet, because of the righteousness of Christ, we can be adorned as his bride. As a matter of fact, I'm reminded of this beautiful verse. If you turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 61 and verse 10, look at how Christ adorns his bride. Isaiah, chapter 61, and look at verse 10. Isaiah, chapter 61, and verse 10. It says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Christ is waiting for us to be prepared as a bride. Revelation chapter 19 I want to look at this text as well. Revelation chapter 19 tells us about the preparation of the bride of Christ. And it says the following. Revelation chapter 19, just prior to the coming of Jesus, it says in verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. As a bride of Christ, we can prepare ourselves by taking on that garment that we receive from Christ. And that garment is the righteousness of Christ. It's the glory of God, the character of Christ revealed in the life of his followers, revealed in the life of his church, in the life of his bride. That's the preparation for that question to be answered. The second most, most important question in the book of Revelation, who is able to stand? We are able to stand because that first question has already been answered. Jesus is worthy. And because Jesus is worthy, you and I can stand. Amen? Because Jesus is worthy, we can be arrayed in his righteousness, in those robes of righteousness as a bride prepared for the coming of Jesus. It is a powerful and beautiful picture that Revelation reveals to us. And we are on the very verge of eternity. We are standing on the borders of heavenly Canaan. When you look at the, six, uh, when you look at the seven seals, in Revelation chapter 6, you find that we are living in the very time of the sixth seal. There are events that transpire in that seal that have already taken place. And the very next event, it's like half, halfly removed, half, half part of it is removed. And the rest that needs to be removed is that very moment that Jesus returns in the clouds of heaven. And then the question is asked, who is worthy? The final seal is removed. There's a moment of awful silence, but also a more moment of great joy for those that are arrayed in the raiments and the robe of Christ given to them by Christ himself. It's my prayer that we will be amongst that number, that we will be amongst those that will enter into the joy of our Lord. How many of you want to be there on that day? 
How many of you want to be the bride of Christ? Praise God. Let's have a prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the picture of Revelation and the glorious picture of you as our bridegroom that is soon coming to take us home. Lord, we long to be with you. We long to spend eternity with you. We long to be united to you. And Lord, soon that question will be asked, who is able to stand? Lord, we know that we cannot stand in our own strength. But because you are worthy and because that first question has been answered, who is worthy to open the scroll? You are worthy, Jesus. And because you are worthy, we are able to stand because you have promised that you will array us in your very garments of righteousness, your robes of salvation. Please do that to us, Lord. Do that in us. Work your works in us. And may your character be revealed in our lives that people around us may know that we do not belong to this world as it is now, but that we are preparing for the renewal of this world and that we are part of your kingdom and that we're part of you. Father, I pray that your spirit may work in us and that you will do that in us that we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you so much for your promises. And thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be your bride for such a time as this. And we commit ourselves to you with all our challenges, with all our trials, with all the difficulties that we face. Lord, we cling to you at such a time as this, knowing that you are capable and more than able to finish the work that you have started in us. For this we ask and believe and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.